Right, I'm going to jump onto this one. Thank you so much, Sally. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It is a new year, and we are gathered. It's good to see you all. Who's still got um, Christmas chocolates left over? You haven't finished eating? <laughs> yeah. It's such a strange period of time, isn't it, where we're all trying to be healthy, but all the temptation's still there. Who's got Christmas cheese, more importantly, still sat in their fridge? Yeah, me too. Loads of Christmas cheese. Should we just gather them together, have a massive cheese party, and be done with it? You know, just get rid of the cheese. It would be a great thing to do. There you go. That's an idea for a church social <laughs> Christmas cheese party. All right, lovely. We're um. You could bring up the uh, PowerPoint. That'd be marvelous. Thank you, uh, June. This morning we're going to kick off a new series in the book of Nehemiah. Many of you will have heard of Nehemiah. Uh, the great rebuilder of the walls of Jerusalem. He's pretty famous, he's pretty loved. Maybe you haven't heard of him, but some of you who have uh, may love him as a great strategist or a great leader. He outworked his faith in this extraordinary way, this practical way of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And as we dig into scripture together over the next few weeks um, in this new uh, term together, we're going to discover it was far more than just walls and Nehemiah was interested in. He wanted to rebuild home for God's people. He wanted to restore hope in God to a hurting and a pretty desperate people at the time. So what's going on? Please do take out your Bibles if you've got them. Physical Bibles are marvellous. They're these things, they've got pages in, they're absolutely brilliant. You'll love them. You buy them in all good bookshops. Um, But digital Bibles are also brilliant. So get them out if you can, um, because we're going to be having a little look at Nehemiah chapter 1 together, Um, and I will be going through some of the stuff and and, uh, helping us just to think together briefly this morning. But why on earth did the walls need rebuilding? What's going on? Uh, Why are they flattened in the first place? If you're like me, I find it hard to have a story completely out of context. I need to know how it fits in the big picture. Now, some of you will, some of you won't, but I think it's useful as Christians, as we're uh, growing in our discipleship, our knowledge of God's word, to understand the big picture whenever we can. Uh, And so this morning, um, I want to give you an easy way that I use to try and whenever I'm looking at uh, a passage in the Bible, I can kind of ask myself, roughly, where is this? How does this fit in God's big salvation plan? Where, Where is this in the big story of God? And I particularly want us to think about the story of God's covenant relationship with his people this morning, just briefly. So what we're going to do is really quickly, I'm going to tell you a technique that I use, where you basically chop up the biblical history, especially the Old Testament, in 500-year chunks. And I'll go as quick as I can through these. If you take notes, scribble the notes down. If not, you'll be able to write them down afterwards. I find it a really helpful way. Someone says, this person, I'm like, where does that kind of fit? This is a way of thinking about it. And I'm particularly this morning talking about God's covenant people. That is, those who are in a special relationship with the living God. So, first up, 2,000 years, this is all approximate, okay, so they give or take 100 years, but approximately this works. 2,000 years before Christ, we have Abraham. He's the guy um, who's known as the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, so that's uh, uh, grandfather, father, son, um, uh, Jacob, also called Israel, that's where they get the name Israel uh, from. Um, But it's Abraham that God first speaks to individually and says, I want to make a covenant with you, Abraham. I've chosen you and your descendants. And if you follow me, and if you put your faith and trust in me, I'm going to bless you. 
and I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And that's 2,000 uh, years before Jesus turns up. And we go to the next one, 1,500 years. So 500 years later, we get Moses, an extraordinary moment. So God's people had been in Exodus, in, uh, sorry, God's people had been in Egypt. Uh, they had been made slaves uh, for several hundred years since Abraham now. It's the whole Joseph going to Egypt, inviting his brothers. They settle, they grow. God's people are growing. It's amazing, but they're stuck in Egypt. And of course, Moses comes along and through the extraordinary plagues uh, and Moses' leadership, God uh, helps his people, the Exodus, to come out of Egypt and into the promised land um, of Israel, uh, where they will dwell, where they will be safe, where they will be able to have a relationship with God. And of course, Moses is where we get the Ten Commandments. And they are called the, uh, the law of the covenant. They are the basis on this relationship. This special relationship hasn't been forgotten. God says, here are my laws to bless you, to make you a people that will bless all uh, the nations. And I will be your God. You will be my people. We are in this relationship together. 500 years later, uh, so at 1000 BC, you've got King David. So you've got, Sol- uh, you've got uh, Saul, David and Solomon, the kings. At this point, by this point, they're in the land. They've all settled. It's extraordinary. Um, uh, and it's, uh, they're together as one people. And uh, uh, Jerusalem at this point becomes a capital and it grows. And the temple of God is built by Solomon, David's son. And God finally has this temple where they take the box that keeps the, uh, the, the Ten Commandments in, and they put it in a very special place, the Holy of Holies. We talked about that when we talked about Zechariah uh, going into uh, or near to the Holy of Holies in the temple. And that's the Ark of the Covenant Law, the Ark of the Relationship, uh, the Law of the Relationship, the box where it's kept. And that's where God's presence chooses to dwell. It's an extraordinary time, um, and uh, it's a time of peace and growth as well. Um, and uh, Israel, uh, it looks like God's promises are coming uh, to pass. And God says to David, uh, this is where we get this amazing prophecy, uh, your throne will never end. I will bless you and I will keep blessing you and I'll bless all nations through you. It will be from your throne that all nations are blessed. Of course, we know who he's talking about, who would come to be the king in David's line. Um, and 500 BC, now this is where we get to. And it's a bit of a mess. It's all a bit of a mess. Jerusalem itself is in uh, absolute rubble. Uh, the walls have been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed. What's happened is, uh, is uh, that the Assyrians have come in and taken the northern uh, group, uh, which, was, uh, which was basically Israel split into two, um, and the, the north lot went off uh, a few hundred years before, and they've gone. So now we're left with Judah, the southern, um, the southern, uh, uh, the southern uh, people, basically, uh, in, country called Judah and what happens is Babylon comes and the Babylonian Empire comes and wipes out uh, wipes out the, 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 the Jewish uh, settlements and basically takes the people and takes them away in exile to Babylon uh, not too far away but in a foreign country uh, in the uh, ancient Near East there in the Middle East in where Iraq is today um, and uh, God's people are desperate and they're there for 70 years. And they're like, this isn't how it's supposed to be, but this is where they are. And it's at about 500 BC that God's people begin uh, to be able to go back because uh, the Babylonians are taken over by uh, people that are even stronger than them, uh, the Persians. And King Cyrus, the new Persian king, comes into Babylon and goes, right, I'm a new king, I'm going to be benevolent. Should we say that benevolent? Benevolent. 
an elephant. You can say whatever you like. <laughs> benevolent. Um, a benevolent ruler, I'm going to let you, you go. And I want you to go back and I want you to rebuild your temple so Zerubbabel goes back. Um, there's another one. There's Zerubbabel. Um, goes back and rebuilds the temple. But it kind of still doesn't go right. If he takes 40,000 people back from Babylon and they go back and they try and rebuild the temple, but it's not really going particularly well. The people are struggling. So uh, then 70 years later, we get Ezra, a priest, who goes, who's also in, in, in Babylon at this point. He then decides that I'm going to go back. I'm going to teach them the law. The covenant's gone wrong. This relationship's not working. And actually, the book, Nehemiah, is the second half of the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are one book uh, originally. Uh, but we're going to be looking at the Nehemiah part. And Ezra goes and he teaches them the law and they re-establish temple worship and they read the Torah and they try and get this relationship, this covenant relationship with God right. Um, but it's still not going right. There's still hostility. It's not good. And this is where we get to. So they've rebuilt the temple. They've begun to rebuild the community, but it's not going well. Um, and this is where we now kick in uh, to our passage. Um, and uh, a chap called Nehemiah, uh, who is a descendant of the exiles, and he works for the Persian king uh, in Babylon. He hears a report from his brother. His brother turns up from uh, Jerusalem, and he says, look, my brother, how is it going? What's happening there with the exiles? What's the state of Jerusalem? And this is where he gets his answer. His brother says this, Nehemiah, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province, they're in great trouble and they're in disgrace and the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And hearing this news totally and utterly breaks Nehemiah. When I heard these things we read, I sat down and I wept. Some days I mourned and fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. It's quite a reaction from Nehemiah, isn't it? This news of Jerusalem broke him. I think you've got to understand that many exiles in Babylon were quite happy. They'd rooted in. They were having families. They had jobs. Nehemiah himself um, had never been to Jerusalem, presumably. It was, he was born a hundred years after his people had been taken to Babylon. He's like multiple generations. All he's ever known, really, is Babylon. And yet, even though he's well regarded in Babylon, even though he's in the king's palace, he's actually uh, the king's cupbearer. We read right at the end of the first chapter. Uh, he would have a good home probably a family and children, but when he hears the states of the walls of Jerusalem in this far-off land, he is utterly broken. And I just thought, why? Why has that hit him so hard? And I want to say to you, I believe it's because he knew, no matter where he was in the world, no matter the pressures of his job and his life, he actually had a higher calling on his life. You see, Nehemiah knew the scriptures. He'd read the story of God, the story I went through quickly with you there. He knew of Abraham. He knew of Isaac and of Jacob and of Moses and of David and of Solomon. And he knew he was part of a higher story, a story about God's people in covenant with the living God. And he knew it was the covenant that was broken 
And he knew that as the walls lay destroyed, it was the name of God, not just his people, that was being mocked and being shamed. Something far more pressing for Nehemiah than the day-to-day demands of his career was there in his life. He knew he was part of a people who were in covenant with the living God. And he knew that this was not how things were supposed to be. Even in this foreign place, surrounded by foreign gods, I don't think we can get our minds around what the ancient Near East would have been like. Every city had its own gods and its own temple and and all these competing powers. And when a king won, the king basically said, it is my God that's strongest and I'm the most powerful and I'm to be revered. And even though all this is going in Babylon, which was an extraordinary place, place of education and science in the ancient world, of art, of literature, this extraordinary place he's at, He knows this isn't right. He has clarity of thought. This is not what God has planned for his people and for this world. It's not the great promise of his blessing and his presence that he promised Abraham and Moses, that he promised King David. This covenant relationship. He wept. He mourned. He fasted. And he prayed. And I simply want to say to us this morning, folks, at the beginning of this new year, to have clarity, to have a higher calling, is a profound thing in this life. Where others would have shrugged their shoulders and go, well, what can we do? We've got work to get on with. Nehemiah knew something far greater was calling him. He knew he was part of a people who were in this relationship with the living God, and this was his highest priority Perhaps this might challenge you and I at the beginning of this new year as we think about our own priorities. We think about our own core values. Who am I? What's the people I'm part of? What's the relationship I'm in? This relationship I have with the living God. May we start this year by remembering that we too are called to something far greater than just responding to the pressures of our everyday lives. In a world of so many swerving and hostile opinions, so many temptations, we should have core values that are rooted and deeper and hold stronger than the current winds of trend and opinion. For we too are part of a greater story. We too are part of God's covenant people who have made a commitment and have a real relationship with the living God. He has saved us. He loves us. He's called each one of us according to his purposes and his grace to live for him. wonder what your priorities are in life, what your core values are and where that fits in the midst of it all. For Nehemiah, it was clear as a whistle. He had to act. He could not stand by and let Jerusalem remain in tatters and his God's people be shamed and God's name be shamed. He must ask the king for his leave to go and help. Before he took a single step, before he planned or strategized, and we'll look at all the things that he does and we'll see him rebuilding the walls in extraordinary ways, the first thing he does is he prays. And in this extraordinary prayer here, we see he strengthens himself in his faith and he reorientates himself towards this covenant relationship he and his people have with God. He recommits himself again to God's purposes. And as we do exactly that this morning, we get the opportunity to do that together, folks. 
as we reorientate ourselves, as we recommit ourselves again this morning at the beginning of this new year to our God, to his people, to his ways, I think we can learn from four simple things that Nehemiah does in this covenant-focused prayer. Whenever you want to reorientate yourself towards Jesus, whenever you want to strengthen yourself in the Lord, as it says David did before running off in battle, he would strengthen himself in the Lord. If you need clarity again on your commitment to the Lord and who he is, then we can learn this morning these four simple things that Nehemiah does. And I'm going to rattle through them. They're just little tidbits for you to hold. The first thing he does is he remembers. He begins by remembering what God is like. He'll read it in verse 5. He says, Lord, the God of heaven. He's using God's personal name, Yahweh. You've revealed your name to us. Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. This is who you are. No matter what's around me, no matter what the world is saying, no matter Marduk, the God, so-called God of Babylon, and the king, and all the courts, and all the army, and all the military, and all the prowess, and all the wonder all around me, it's you, God, who are the awesome one. You're the only one who sits on the throne of heaven. And you are the one who keeps your covenant of love with those who love you. In these words, Nehemiah is specifically remembering that God is faithful. We sung about it this morning. Why do we love that song? Because it sings about one of the core characteristics, unchanging of our God. He is faithful always. And even though Nehemiah is in a foreign land and his people have been exiled and the walls lay in ruin, Nehemiah knows that God has not been unfaithful. And in fact, in this old covenant way, he knows actually they haven't been abandoned. For all along, God had warned them, follow my ways, follow my laws, and I will bless you and be with you. But if you turn from me, then other nations will overwhelm you and you will be scattered. It's exactly what he promised would happen. Nehemiah can't say, well, God didn't keep to the covenant, did he? He did. It's exactly what he said would happen if his people rejected him. And so Nehemiah remembers that even in this mess, God is still faithful. And even this consequence for their sin, it's not an abandonment. Because of that, there is still hope. Hear me, faithful God, he says. Incline your ear, as we thought about the other day. Hear me, Lord, even in this foreign land, far from the temple. Hear me. And so he remembers who God is, and then he repents. As he thinks of God's faithfulness, he looks at himself and his people, and he recognizes their unfaithfulness in keeping the covenant. And this leads him to genuine repentance. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. We've bust this covenant, God. We've busted. We have messed it up so bad. And in his repentance, he doesn't just try and push it on to everyone else. He says, and I'm part of that too. I've got it wrong, Lord. Forgive me, Lord. And then he reminds, this is quite unexpected, actually. I love this. I could talk a lot longer on this, but I'm going to give you a tiny little snippet. Having remembered and repented, Nehemiah now actually reminds God about his part in the covenant. 
I love this. This is so cool. Remember, God, the instruction you gave your servant Moses. Do you remember what you said? You said, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. This is taken from uh, Deuteronomy 30. This is the original blessings and curses of the covenant given by Moses. Nehemiah goes right back to Moses. He says, look, I remember this. He's clearly studied the scriptures. You said you'd scatter us among the nations, but you said, if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there, and I will bring them to the place I have chosen as the dwelling for my name. Extraordinary. Remember, God, this is what you said. Don't forget God. Really? Can we remind God? Is that allowed? Does God forget? What on earth is going on here? I'd suggest to you that God doesn't forget, just as a sort of a baseline bit of theology. God's not forgetful. But something's going on here. What we're getting is an insight into a real relationship. This covenant relationship was never just one way. God says lots of things and these people just go, oh yeah, I'll get on with it. No, it's always been about a relationship, a conversation. It's what they both agreed to do. God and his people together in a covenant of love, bound by this law that was given. This moment, Nehemiah, he's quoting these words of Moses. Remember them, Lord. Remember you saved these people. You loved these people. Remember you said you'd you'd bring them home again, even if they were scattered. He's recalling before God, God's promises. And he's saying, bring these words to mind again now, Lord. And let me see them even now in my time. What at first might seem almost rude to remind God as if he forgot is actually an amazing way of praying, friends. To recall before God his promises to you and to hold him to it. You think, I can't do that, Matt. That sounds a bit... No, actually, God in his grace invites us to do it. We have no right to do it. He invites us to do it. He's the promise-keeping God. We see it in Scripture himself. There's this point where Moses is talking to God, and God says, I'm going to destroy the people. It's after they've created the golden uh, calf. And Moses says, well, wait, wait. Don't you remember you said you'd love us and look after us and bless us? And God goes, yeah, I did say that. You're right, so I'm not going to. And he goes, did Moses change God's mind? Is that possible? Probably not. Probably not. God gave Moses the opportunity to remember his promises, to recall them before the Lord, and to stand on them, and say, this is who you are, this is what you said, this is the covenant relationship I'm in with you, God. So, Lord, let me see the truth of these promises in my lifetime now. That's what we do in prayer, folks. Exactly what Nehemiah is doing here. I know your promises. Remember them, Lord. Let me see them, bring them to mind. And finally, he requests. After all of that, Nehemiah simply says, so hear me, Lord. Having remembered and repented and reminded God of his promises, he simply says, Lord, help me now be part of your plans. As part of your covenant people, let me be part of seeing your plans to bless the nations and your people come to pass. Help me do the bit that I can. Give your servant success today in granting him favour in the presence of the king that I may talk to him, that I may get leave to go and help your people. It's a great start, isn't it? Four words for us to take and four that we're going to uh, do this morning. 
We're going to recommit now. In a moment, the kids will be coming back in. We're going to recommit to our faith and sharing communion together. And I invite us to do what Nehemiah did. Firstly, to remember. We're going to recite the creed together in a moment. Remember our faith. Remember who our God really is. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. No matter what we're facing in this world, whatever the world is going through, he is awesome in power. He sits on the throne of heaven. Most of all, he is faithful in every single way to us and his love will never fail. And we're going to have an opportunity to repent, folks, as we start this new year. There's no better way to start than being honest before God about our shortcomings, to admit our wrongs and to say sorry. And we're going to remind, we're going to recall what God has done and his promises to us in Christ Jesus as we take communion. We're going to recall before God that we are his covenant people. We're in relationship with him. And his great covenant promise is coming to pass even in our lifetimes. We and the nations of the world have been blessed extraordinarily by his love. We will recall that the covenant of love with God is no longer through the law, folks. It's no longer in that ark. It's not on tablets of stone. It's now through the blood of Jesus. We read at the Last Supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant. Everything changes now. The new relationship between God and his people. And it's in my blood. It's poured out for the forgiveness of many. So do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whilst Nehemiah was reminding God of his promises, it's Jesus who says to us, never forget what I've done for you. The old covenant, we would all have been worthy of exile. All of us, folks. We'd have been long gone. We'd be in some far Babylon. But now the righteousness we receive, the sinlessness we are accounted with, is not because of us, but because of Jesus. He's the one who fulfilled the law perfectly, the covenant relationship perfectly. And his righteousness is given to you and me by his grace alone. We remember on the cross... He willingly took on all of our rebellion, our disobedience. He took it all, our sin, our shame for me, for you, paid for it all. And even though it seemed like God had abandoned Christ on the cross, just as it seemed like he'd abandoned his people in exile, as God brought his people back, we see he was always faithful to his people. How much more to Jesus Christ, his son. He hadn't abandoned him. Jesus remembered the Father. He said, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died and then rose again in victory. God had not abandoned his people and he never will. Remember this, Jesus says, what I've done for you. Remember that you are my covenant people, bought through my blood in relationship with the Father. And so we will. And as we do, we're going to recall before God thanksgiving all he has done we're going to stand on his promises, right? That he really has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. That he will create in us, in me and you, a clean heart. That he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. That he will guide our paths, give us strength, lead us to be the people he says we will be. Rebuilders of ruins, proclaimers of good news, healers of the broken, liberators of the oppressed. Those with a garment of praise instead of despair. And bringers of hope in this hurting world. If I invite the band to come back. And the final thing we're simply going to say to God is we're going to request. We're going to say, Lord, as part of your covenant people, would you use me as part of your plans to bless this world? Help me to do my
part. We're just going to respond as the children and youth come back in by singing this morning, I will offer up my life in spirit and truth.